Good evening everyone and welcome to our live broadcast. Today we're looking at Anguttara Nikaya Book of Fours Sutta 113 Padoda Sutta Patoda is this, uh, a stick that you use to, special stick that is used to prod, prod a horse. stick that was designed to be used against a horse to make the horse afraid and out of fear the horse would respond increase its speed most likely that's where they get the term beating a dead horse you use the the goad or the prod on a dead horse it doesn't have any effect kind of a nasty sort of implement so the Buddha used this as a, an analogy for something nasty he said there are four kinds of horses Five, five kinds of horses. Right? And do we have the fifth kind? I think maybe this one only has four. Hmm. I think there might be another sutta where there's actually the fifth one. Anyway, for our, for our intents and purposes, four is enough. These four kinds of horses are called Ajaniya. Ajaniya. Just want to look up the word Ajaniya. Ajaniya. Mm. Not in the sutta. Anyway, it means like a thoroughbred horse. Badro, it's a special horse. Idekacho, Badro Asajinio, Asajanio. Four kinds. What kinds of horses that you would say they're trainable? What kind of horses that you can train? The Buddha was thought to was called uh, Purisa Dhamma Sarati. Sarati. Sarati is one. Saratai. Rata is a cart. Sarata with a cart. Sarati. One who has a cart. Sarati means a trainer, one who trains horses. But the Buddha was a trainer of men, of, of people. The Buddha was able to train those who are who were able to be trained anyone who is capable of it he was, the Buddha was the one to train them so this kind of imagery is this kind of analogy is, is common, fair in the Buddha's teaching 
But as for horses, the kind of horses that are trainable, there are four kinds. The first kind of horse, you lift the padoda, the goad, and it just has to see its shadow, padoda chayang. Diswa, having seen the shadow of the goad, it gets freaked out. Well, it doesn't get freaked out, it becomes um, moved, stirred, agitated, and knows what to do. Second kind of thoroughbred horse. Well, it sees the shadow, but it's not stirred. But as soon as the goad touches the horse, just touches it. Touches it to the hair on, on its coat. As soon as it feels the goad, becomes agitated. Gets a sense of urgency. Urgency. Sangwega. And this word sangwega is a sense of urgency. That's the second type. The third type, you can touch it with the goad. When it sees the goad, nothing. When you touch it with the goad, nothing. But if you whack it with the goad, once it feels a little bit of pain, Mm. Okay, then it gets a sense of urgency. It says, "Oh, better do something. Better speed up. Better turn right. Better turn left. Whatever." And the fourth type, you can even if you hit it. It's not a very well thoroughbred, well-bred horse, but you hit it. You hit the hide, nothing. But if you whack it on the bone. Where it really hurts, make it really hurt, mm, then it becomes uh, becomes excited, agitated, moved. So these are four kinds of horses. Now, how is this interesting to us? It's because in the same way, there are four thoroughbred people in the world, four people that you can train, four types of people can be trained so listen up think of yourself as the sort of person who is going to respond to the goad so you think was well, the Buddha gonna use a goad on us sometimes my students get af our students get afraid I think the teacher is going to punish them or they're afraid of the teacher sometimes but that's not what this is referring to actually that's not the imagery the Buddha is providing us with. The goad here is old age, sickness, and death. The goad is suffering. Some people see it, some people don't. Everyone is touched by it. Everyone is aware that it exists. But it takes a special type of person to respond to it. So the Buddha said there are four types of people. For some people, like the Bodhisattva is one. Many people, you hear, first hear about death. The Buddha says, in such and such a village or town, some woman or man has fallen ill and died. That's it. That's all it takes. They hear about that and they say, holy crap, that could happen to me. And so being stirred, they, they strive. Knowing this, having heard this, once they know this, they give rise to or they become agitated 
being agitated, yoni so padahati. They strive on with wisdom, wisely, carefully. And as a result, they're able to see the truth for themselves. That's all it takes. Think of this as someone who comes to meditate because they know that death is a part of life. Why? Well, they've heard of other people dying. Sometimes it takes a real catastrophe. You hear about uh, when I heard about the the uh, September 11th attack, which is today is the anniversary. It's like what the fifteenth, sixteenth anniversary, fifteenth anniversary. When I heard about it. I was doing walking meditation. I remember one of the other meditators came to my kuti, and one of the teachers actually came to my kuti and said uh, two planes just flew into the twin towers, and I was kind of like, "Wow!" It sounded like a movie. It didn't phase me at all. I mean, I didn't get get the, the extent of it. But like a year or two later, I saw a book. These people falling from the towers and stories of people being crushed and being pushed, you know, just by the, the throng of, of bodies being pushed out windows, having ceilings collapse. 3,000 people lost their lives just last year or this year we went in New York to a, me a memorial uh, where they have the, these names of all the victims we did meditation there and people think about this and, uh, and they don't know anyone or they don't know any of these people but it's a, it's a shock enough to make them think wow that could happen to me or you hear about the tsunami in Asia. Some of the stories you hear about suffering in Thailand, Sri Lanka. I was in Thailand when it happened, actually. This big tsunami in I don't know, 2004 or something. I don't remember, many years ago. 2006, maybe, I don't remember. Sometimes that's all it takes. It makes you think, wow, that could come to any of us. That could come to my the ones I love. That could come to, to me, myself. And you, you decide that all of this thing, all of this busyness that we, we thrive upon or we rush towards, we spend so much energy on all these things that in the end are, are circumscribed by death their meaning, their, their benefit the power is subservient to the realities that we're going to get old, sick and die and they end up being somewhat meaningless and, uh, insignificant and so this sort of person takes up the practice of something that is significant, some way to rise above the rise above the limits placed on us by death, or at least to prepare oneself so that the death is with a sound mind, with a clear mind. That's the first type. The second type of person, that's like the horse that just sees the shadow. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't even feel it. But the second type of person has to see somebody die. Or has to see suffering. See someone suffering. Not someone they know. Not a family member not someone they're, they're especially fond of but so it doesn't hurt but it shocks them they see people dying maybe someone in a battlefield or someone in a hospital 
Maybe you're just walking down the street and someone gets hit by a car and you think, that could happen to me. Maybe you're on a bus and someone has a heart attack. It doesn't happen to everyone. But when it happens, well, some people respond, some people don't. Some people think, hmm, well, glad it didn't happen to me. Thank God that didn't happen to me. There but for the grace of God, what an odd saying, no? Sounds almost uh, vicious and cruel. Why didn't it happen to you, right? Some people, that's all they can think of is, oh, they feel lucky, they're glad that it happened to someone else and not to them or anyone they love. So we, we live in this glass or this bubble, right? This illusory palace. We hear about people being robbed and murdered and getting sick, cancer. It doesn't come to anyone we know. Sometimes when we see it, then it hits us. Oh yes, well, really this could happen to me. It hits home for some people. And so they think, well, I better do something about that. There's got to be something better than just running around in my hamster wheel. And so they decide to take up spiritual practice. The third type of thoroughbred, a human, Well, they might see it happen to someone else, but that wouldn't move them. But when uh, when someone they know, someone they love, someone they care about very much, mother, father, sister, brother, husband, wife, they get sick and die, or they suffer terribly, then it hits home. At the very least, it hits home that you can lose you can lose something very precious to you in a moment. They're hit with mourning and loss and the sense that suffering isn't just something that happens to other people. They get a sense of what it means to lose something. They get a sense of how uncertain life is. And maybe it penetrates in and they think, well, that could happen to me, you know. I'm, I could be next. What am I going to do? Watching their loved one die, what, how am I going to feel when I die? How am I going to react? How am I going to face my death? And so they take up spiritual practice. This is like the one that actually has to hurt. You hit, them with, you hit the horse with a goad and it, it gets hurt feels pain. And the fourth type of person, well, this is where it really hits home. You get old, you get sick, and you're dying. Some people, it has to get to that point. It has to really cut to the bone, so to speak. Some people will only start to practice when they're actually sick or dying, when they experience great suffering. Sometimes it doesn't take death, sometimes it just takes great suffering. Have to be hit with suffering, but taking their own suffering as a base, then they come and do something. The fifth type of person that's not in this sutta, but I, I have a feeling that it's somewhere else. This is from my memory. Is the horse that you have to beat it until it dies, and if you beat it till it dies, it still won't get up and you know, well it's dead it won't get up but you beat it until it dies and it'll never before it's dead it won't ever do what you say like a mule perhaps how we think of a mule you beat it it doesn't help this is a sort of person who no matter how much suffering comes they always look on the bright side of life and they're not prepared for death when it comes and they die confused and deluded without any spiritual clarity or enlightenment. Never thought to keep moral precepts, Not never thought to cultivate meditation, never thought to cultivate wisdom. They just live their lives plodding along, doing things that in the end turn out to be meaningless, pointless, 
useless. So, which of these types of people do we want to be? Ajahn Tong, like, I've heard him tell this, where I first heard it, or maybe not first heard it, but many years ago, he, I have a recording of him talking about this, this sutta. He said the Buddha liked to give us similes, anal analogies. important for us to, to remember this, that you know, anything could happen. Sometimes we get kind of demotivated in our meditation, thinking, oh, why am I bothering? I mean, you have to question yourself, are you ready for anything? Are you equipped to handle the vicissitudes of life? like you're going to war and you don't know how to shoot a gun Doesn't it's not very well prepared or anything that you have to prepare for are you prepared for life are you prepared, prepared for death most people are not and we suffer but this, this is the thing until it comes to you Many people will not actually um, react. It's kind of embarrassing that it takes our own suffering, and uh, we never really thought before we suffered ourselves. When we suffer ourselves, we leap sometimes. Some people, many people you hear this, they leap to spiritual practice. So it's kind of embarrassing because you already knew that this was part of reality, but you were deluding yourselves and lulling yourself into a false sense of security because it hadn't happened to you or anyone you know yet. You don't want to wait until that, you don't want to wait until you're dying yourself because it's going to come to all of us. We're all going to get old, sick and die. That's true. The question is, is that what it's going to take before we actually start to prepare ourselves? Not a very good and a very good choice. So, congratulations to these guys. We're down to three. One meditator left today. Couldn't take it, I guess. He didn't tell me why he was leaving, but sometimes, some people. But there, it's you know, congratulations that they came out. Much appreciation. One meditator is just finishing tonight. He actually kind of finished today, but I didn't. I didn't tell him. So he gets another day. Because <laughs> he's doing. Well, he kind of he kind of fudged last night. So, but he, he actually got. He actually finished the course. I, I'm very proud of him. But uh, you know, he, he did something wrong. So I said, "Oh, go, go do it right." So he thinks he's he's still not finished. I think it's extra, extra credit. Anyway, that's the Dhamma for tonight. On to questions. Uh, let me see. I can hear you. They can't. And now hopefully they can. Did I start this? That started... Go ahead. Bhante, how do I get rid of attachment to material things? Thinking, thinking, thinking. Is there any other way to stop the attachment to stuff? Everything is impermanent, so how do I actually stop this type of attachment? How can I live with less? What's the insight around this? Thank you. Well, you watch. You watch your your interaction with these things. I mean, that's what mindfulness is all about. You study your the nature of your attachment. I mean, you ask, well, how do I get rid of these things? Well, why do you want to get rid of them? And that's the question you have to answer. Because once you've answered that question, not just, and see, the point is, we, we know the answer intellectually. But once you've really answered that, and you really know that it's 
better not to be attached, then you won't get attached. That's how the mind works. It would be curious, wouldn't it, if we did things that we didn't want to do, right? We, we, why would you cling to something you didn't want to cling to? But that's the whole thing. You think you don't want to. And intellectually, you tell yourself, I don't want to cling to that. But it's not really true, is it? You want to cling to it. So the only way to be free from it is to stop wanting to cling to it. Well, how do you do that? You see that it's not worth clinging to. This is the whole, the whole theory behind uh, the three characteristics. So people wonder, well, what are these three characteristics? They're the realization that nothing is worth clinging to. Those things that we thought were stable, status, were stable, predictable, they're not stable, they're not predictable. Those things that we thought were satisfying are not satisfying. Those things that we thought were me, mine, controllable, possessable, are none of those things. And so when you see these three characteristics, you let go. Where we, or, or more like when you see the lack of three characteristics, you see that they're not stable, they're not satisfying, they're not controllable. Then you say, well, why the heck would I cling to that? And you stop clinging to it. So you just have to watch. You have to look and you have to see that these things that you cling to are not worth clinging to. But you need the meditation practice as a means of focusing your mind and, and straightening the mind so that you're not looking at it with prejudice. You're looking at it just as it objectively is. Seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. Sensing and thinking are just what they are. The other thing I might say is that, as I've been saying, is that they're habits. So it's not something you can just turn on and off. You know, you've cultivated the habit of liking something again and again and again. So you can't just get rid of it. You have to change the habit. So as you, you cultivate the habit of seeing things as they are, seeing things as un, not worth clinging to, unworthy of clinging, um, your habit starts to change. You, you cling less until eventually you don't cling at all. Does giving up entertainment occur naturally as one's vipassana practice progresses, or is it simply something one has to force himself or herself to do immediately? There's two kinds of giving up. So if you give up artificially, then the benefit is there's, it's beneficial because you're not cultivating the addiction, right? Every time you engage in addiction, you're, you're reinforcing the habit. So that's bad. That's a problem. Um, but the only point is that that's not actually giving it up. You still might want to do it. And the, so the real problem is not you know, whether you should or not. The, the question is whether you can. Because you might find that if you just give it up artificially, but you don't eventually give it up in reality, that you're just going to go back and, and maybe even stronger than before cling to it. So it's, it's you know, giving up is, those are two very different kinds of giving up. It's definitely, obviously, beneficial not to do things that encourage the clinging. The question is, can you? That's why people become monks, go and live in the forest, because uh, much easier. How can I feel the effects of meditation in only two years of practice if, according to Buddhism, I've been doing everything wrong for countless eons? Well, because you know it's not accumulative in that sense. You can only accumulate so much, and you've also gone through a lot of suffering in all that time, and so you've temp tempered your enthusiasm for things. You know, you've you've cultivated good and evil, and you go up and down. Sometimes you've been a very good person, a very moral, ethical, noble person. Sometimes you've been a wicked, evil, mean person. So it's not it's not like you're building and building up. It doesn't add up like that. It just changes. So 
in two years of practice, well, you, know, you, you may not get, you may not become an arahant, you may, but uh, more than likely, uh, you know, in two years, uh, and then the other thing is, what are you doing in those two years? What do you mean by meditating in two years of practice? Uh, as actually, as individually, you've been pract you practice quite a bit every day, so you, you most likely will feel the effects if you're doing it properly. Um, you're building up a, a new habit. So the question of how strong your old habits is, it's a good question, and many of them are very, very strong but they're not eons strong because over those eons a lot has changed you've become a new person countless times you've changed your habits countless times as well so how strong a habit can become is a good question if you do the same thing lifetime after lifetime after lifetime they become very strong there are, there are many habits which people will even though they meditate will not be able to give up lifetime after lifetime. So even a sotapanna can take up to seven lifetimes, and that's a sotapanna, someone who has already seen Nibbāna. So how long is it going to take you to actually see Nibbāna? It might take many, many lifetimes. On the other hand, I mean, intensive meditation practice it doesn't take very long at all. But to be able to do intensive meditation practice, you already have to have done a lot right. Well, just to be born a human being, you've done a lot right. You haven't been doing everything wrong for countless eons. You've actually done a lot right in order to be born not as an animal or in hell or as a ghost, but actually as a human being who has mental faculties that are quite well advanced. So you've already done a lot right. And meditation is a fairly intense habit and so ability to override other sort of random habits. I mean the other thing I guess is because meditation is so wholesome and because there's such clarity it's got an exceptional power to it. You could argue that. Anyway, I mean it's all kind of theoretical. In reality you practice for a month or so and you should, if you practice intensively for about a month that's about the the, not the the measuring stick that's what the, the, the standard of measurement a month of intensive meditation practice is about enough for an average person to gain exceptional insight into reality that was Mahasi Sayadaw who said this and I think it's a very astute observa observation I'm in perfect agreement with him I had made a similar inquiry yesterday, but desired to rephrase it in order to better express my question. Included are two inquiries. Would it be fine to fully replace sitting or formal meditation with lying meditation? As sitting meditation is fairly uncomfortable, would I still receive the same benefits from the practice regardless of the posture? I stop there. We'll do them one at a time. Now, so lying meditation is perfectly fine. But avoiding something because it's uncomfortable is not fine at all. Discomfort is a very much a part of the practice. So if by fairly uncomfortable you mean excruciatingly painful to the point of insanity, then yes, okay. Maybe sitting meditation is, not enough, is too much for you, or maybe you should do sitting in a chair. But to avoid sitting just because it's fairly uncomfortable is really a bad idea. Because... Um, so, you know, it's the opposite of what the meditation is about. Uh, you're not; it's not about coddling your uh, partialities or your uh, attachments. Your it's about taking you out of your comfort zone. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be uncomfortable and disturbing. It's supposed to disturb your ordinary sense of the world as being stable, satisfying, and controllable. So, in that case, it sounds like sitting meditation would probably be a really good challenge for you to learn how to let go, and to not cling. If instead, you do lying meditation, you're probably just coddling yourself, and it's not going to have, I mean, it has, there's potential. I mean, I guess that's the other problem with lying meditation, is it's quite comfortable. 
And so you're not likely to face great physical pain, which is a shame because that sounds like you're actually quite averse to physical discomfort and therefore are very much stuck. You'll never be able to be free from the suffering that comes from physical discomfort. On the other hand, if you were to do sitting meditation regularly, you would be able to let go and come to rise above physical discomfort so that it would no longer um, cause you suffering. So I certainly wouldn't do that. And I think that's a general thing is you shouldn't, and no one should ever place too much emphasis on lying meditation because it's too comfortable. The only people who might is people who are really sick or you know, physical ailments or at times when you're just overstressed and lying meditation might help to calm you down but I wouldn't do it long term I'd try my very best to do sitting it's a much better position as far as dealing with ordinary aches and pains and stresses and sufferings Should I not worry about long breaths in lying meditation that occur naturally and still say rising, falling? Would saying rising, falling more slowly in order to correspond with the longer breaths be an issue? Does it matter how fast or slow I say rising or falling? Yeah, it should be according to the breath. You're only saying it because it's reminding you of what's happening. So rising slowly is fine. What do you think about practicing a musical instrument, violin? Would you categorize it the same as listening to music? Does it hinder the vipassana practice in the same manner? Yes. Maybe more so. I mean, it's, it's different. When you're listening, when you're practicing, you can gain a lot of ego, right? You, am I good? Am I bad? The sense of control, you know forcing yourself to get better at it, you know, pushing yourself, wanting to get better. There's a lot, diff a lot of probably worse defilements than simply listening. Listening, you just feel good about it, happy about it. But either way, it depends on your state of mind. Right? Listening, you can say hearing, hearing. An arahant can listen to music and be un unmoved by it. So can a meditator who's emulating the practice of an arahant. Um, Playing the violin, less likely. But you can be <coughs> mindful of playing the violin technically. If one is developing insight at the cost of tranquility, what is the best countermeasure to take within the Satipatthana online course or adjustment to practice to balance the two? Could it mean I'm doing something wrong somehow? You don't do insight at the cost of tranquility. In our practice, we do them both together. The tranquility is, comes from the, the mantra, really. When you remind yourself, seeing, seeing, or even rising, falling, you're cultivating a, a moment of tranquility. It's called kanika samadhi. It's what you use for, for insight meditation. And people are too obsessed with this idea of tranquility all across the board. People who come here, are, they've never heard of this meditation type, they, they expect it to make them calm. They're always worried about the fact that they're not calm, obsessed about you know, meditators. Even today I had a meditator who was, uh, who was just realizing that uh, he's very much clinging to these calm states, liking them. And he didn't, he wasn't noting to himself liking, liking. So, you're only doing something wrong if you're not meditating. You know? If you're not saying to yourself, rising, falling, or seeing, or frustrated, or agitated, or worried, or distracted. Don't put too, too much emphasis on the idea of tranquility. We're trying to see that nothing is worth clinging to. Tranquility, in many cases, just makes you cling. It's just something we cling to. Why would it help you to feel calm all the time? It wouldn't really.
Why do some Buddhists think Mara is a being? It makes no sense. This would imply that it is a permanent being and that we should blame some outer entity for our own defilements. Well, there's no such thing as a being. They don't exist. But in a conventional sense, we talk about beings. Like, I am a being, you are a being, but it's just convention. Mara is an angel type of... Uh, uh, it's actually a category of angel. So there is one group of angels that... Um, delight in the acts of others. So when they see the Eiffel Tower or the Twin Towers in New York, they like that. They like when being other beings do things. They get excited. I don't know why, but there's one group of angels. And so they can be kind of nasty because they they try to encourage people to do things, to become things. And they don't like Buddhists as a result because we're all about giving up and letting go and if everyone was Buddhist, well, you know, there would be much less sexual intercourse, there would be much less ambition, there would be much less greed, and much less doing things, you know. Society would probably fall apart. There would be much less activity. We wouldn't have the iPhone. Um, and so we, the Buddha called them Mara. Buddha said this kind of being is a Mara, is evil. And he kept calling this, this Mara kept coming after him and trying to convince him not to teach, not to become enlightened and not to teach and just to, to die already because he didn't want him teaching people to let go and stop building, right? Stop creating. And so the Buddha would always call him Mara. But there are five kinds of Mara. One of them is, oh, that's only one of the five, Devaputta Mara. The other four are, well, death is, is evil, uh, karma is evil. And by evil, it just means these are things that, uh, well, people think of as bad, that are, are problematic, cause suffering. Um, khandas, so the body is suffering, our body and mind is Mara. And we have Machumara, Bisankaramara, Kandamara, Kilesamara. The fourth one is defilements. Defilements are evil. Those are the five types of Mara altogether. Pante, do Buddhists believe that Mara's influence people? Oh, yeah. Mm. They trick people. Like they, were, they would come up, monks would be meditating and, a, and suddenly an ox would come up and it was, would threaten to knock over all their bowls that were you know, clay bowls uh, because they, it would stop them from meditating, you know, agitate them, make them go back to the lay life, ideally and start doing things, start building things, making things happen. And uh, the Buddha said, that's Mara. See Mara, O monks, the story. In the, somewhere in the Vinaya, I think. Thank you, Bhante. In sitting meditation, I find that I have more concentration if I open my eyes. Would you say I'm not practicing correctly that way? Who cares about concentration? It's another one of those things you shouldn't worry about. We are only concerned about momentary concentration. You notice in the Satipatthana Sutta, anyone who, 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 def who disagrees, I mean, it sounds like such a horrible non-Buddhist thing to say, of course concentration is what leads to wisdom. But if you notice in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's the one thing the Buddha didn't mention. I mean, he mentioned it, but very briefly, like later at the end. But uh, throughout the sutta, he talks about atapi sampajano satima. You need effort, mindfulness, and clear comprehension. Concentration is just assumed. It's not the focus. You're not sitting there trying to focus on anything. It's not trying to concentrate. So you better concentrate? Well, fine. Better for you to close your eyes and have to struggle with not being concentrated so you can learn to let go. Because if you're always finding tricks to focus your mind, to concentrate your mind, you're never going to see impermanent suffering and non-self. You're just going to see calm and tranquil and stable and satisfying and controllable. 
that's not what we're trying to do. So close your eyes. It's a better, a good reason to close your eyes it's because it makes it harder to concentrate. It's more of a challenge for you. So you can start to see how your mind isn't under your control. You can't just make yourself concentrate. In lying meditation, is it better to note the rising and falling of the abdomen or to note lying, lying? From my experience, I have felt noting lying, lying to be more superficial and have found noting the rising and falling of the abdomen to offer a more in-depth mindfulness. But I'm not sure if this was the case or if there was any true advantage to noting one over the other. I mean, in-depth mindfulness is probably a red herring. You're probably... It's probably even misunderstanding mindfulness, but okay, let's see, theoretically, I can get that because the rising and falling is, is more real in a sense, you know, it's more, it's a really good object because you start to see impermanent suffering and non-self quite clearly. Lying, lying is a little more abstract, but in, when you say that you're being aware of the, the tension and the pressure, so that's also valid. I wouldn't worry too much about that, you know. Um, I guess I would say if you're really inclined to be doing meditation, then you can do rising, falling. If that becomes too much for you, you could just do lying, lying. I guess I'd probably favor the rising and falling approach. I, I mean, so I probably agree with you, and there's a sense that it does to somehow, to some extent, provide, as you say, more in-depth mindfulness. Just be careful that you're not confusing concentration with mindfulness. But yeah, I would... I would gravitate more towards the rising and falling than just saying lying, lying. Bhante, regarding the doctrine of dependent origination, I see how important this is in relation to one's spiritual progress. But does this also relate to the origin of all things? In other words, does the doctrine of dependent origination re relate to the origins, for lack of a better word, of the universe or multiverse? Was there a first cause? How did this first cause arise? In contemplating the cosmos, as I often do, I begin thinking about this. I thank you in advance for your reply. Yeah, I mean, the Buddha was not keen to have us think about things like first cause. Um, I'm, in fact, surprised with a Dhamma name like that, that you don't know that. Um, okay, but, uh, it's just... One of the big things in Buddhism, in, in Theravada Buddhism anyway, well, most of Buddhism, is um, there's no sense of a first cause. It's a very Christian sort of thing. Buddhism and Hinduism have the sense of the universe not having a beginning or end. Or the Buddha more not being concerned with a beginning or end. You know, he, he, he did say that you can't find a beginning. You can't see a beginning. And anyone who thinks like that or asks these sorts of questions, origin and beginning and the limit and who thinks a lot about the cosmos is just going to get caught up in the thicket of views. It's like if you know the, the simile the Buddha gave to a monk who was asking questions like this was of an arrow, someone who is shot with a poisoned arrow. If you're shot with a poisoned arrow, what are you concerned with? Will you be concerned with the poison? and how to cure it, or will you be concerned with the arrow and who shot it? I suppose you could argue, if you want to find the person who shot it, because they'll be able to tell you what sort of poison they put on it. But much more important is specifically knowing what sort of poison is on it. But someone, some sort of people, they, they're shot with a poison arrow and they start to ask, forget about curing it, I want to know what sort of arrow I was shot with, and what sort of person was it that shot me, what was their name, where were they from? They said, well, you know, it's probably in your better interest to find out what sort of poison it was and figure out an antidote. So that's why the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, which dependent origination is really an elaboration of the Four Noble Truths. That's what the that's what Paditya Sanupada is. How grave effect would killing a spider have on one's progress? 
I'm not sure if it is a placebo effect, but I think I hold insects by a higher standard. Will one lose fear of insects as a result of this practice? Hmm. I mean, you can't measure. It's not. It's not like a. a what are those boards with beads on them? Bean counter? No. Calculus. Ab abacus. Abacus. That's what it is. Not like an abacus where you can <laughs> one kill, two kill. Uh, some people do. Some people do a small thing like killing a spider and go to hell for it. Another person will kill a thousand beings, a thousand people, and not go to hell at all. Become enlightened. Even you can't measure it like that. Karma is something that's far too complex to. To, to, sit, to give you an answer to your first question um, all we can say is that it's bad but the karma is not the killing the karma is the intention to kill the, the cruel intention and it's all the fear as well the fear is also bad karma so yes absolutely you'll start to lose your fear of insects as a result of this practice it might take a while but that's very much a part as you start to say to yourself, afraid, afraid, you'll start to teach yourself how useless it is to be afraid. And you'll actually start to give it up. You'll get bored of being afraid. You'll lose the excitement. I have a question about the sitting posture. The most comfortable for me is the cross-legged. But the problem with this with this one, that it's not the best for the back. And I think the lotus one is better. So I try to meditate half lotus, which causes me to be off balance. So I meditate on that off balance and sour that comes with it. And it passes all right for the 15 minutes after that, I have to change back to cross-legged. Any suggestions on how to get to full lotus or for sitting in general? I don't think that simply sitting cross-legged is bad for your back. Um, I suppose you could argue that the lotus, full lotus, is makes it um, puts a little bit less tension on your back. Maybe mm. you sit full, full lotus. Yeah, you probably have better posture. I mean, I think the Buddha was was uh, keen on it, but you, know, you certainly can sit with a straight back, you know, just sitting cross-legged. You just might feel a little more pain in the beginning. Over time, that'll go away. But that's um, very much a part of the practice. You just say to yourself, pain, pain. On the other hand, you can sit comfortably with a little bit of a slouched back. And the pain will still come. But you deal with the pain, and you learn to let it go. Another thing is we're not practicing uh, jhana or tranquility meditation. So your your um, your body is going to be adjusting. It will be tensing and untensing, and so to sit full lotus is actually quite difficult. Beyond say an hour, so you can do it for one hour, but then the next hour, when then when you do walking meditation, it'd be quite painful because we never enter into samatha jhana. We never focus the mind. The mind is not fixed on a single object so as a result doing the full lotus is, is not really tenable not really doable in this sort of technique so I would much more recommend sitting cross-legged and learning to deal with the pain in the back it's my understanding that a sotapanna cannot be reborn more than seven times how would one know if they've achieved stream entry in a prior life and where does the number seven come from thank you I don't know where the number seven comes from um, but you would know because you would be clear in your mind about the right way to become enlightened you would just naturally know something very true about the world it's more likely you'll be born in heaven in which case you'll remember becoming a Sotapanna but if somehow you were born as a human being it's not common actually but uh, if you're born as a human being and didn't remember your past lives I mean it's 
arguable that you might well remember your past lives, but even s assuming that you didn't, you would naturally not kill or steal or cheat or lie or take drugs and alcohol. You would uh, have perfect, uh, have a perfect, you know, you would, you would have an understanding of right practice. You wouldn't ever be inclined to wrong practice. You'd have an innate sense of the right way to do things. I mean, you may not remember how to meditate, certainly not. But uh, this natural sense of things would make you look at the world very different from most people and you'd start to naturally, you'd naturally be able to see the suffering and things and you'd slowly lose interest over lifetimes maybe but this is assuming you didn't again meet a Buddha or meet with the Buddha's teachings which I guess is more likely you'd gravitate towards the Buddha's teachings and you'd learn about them and you'd quickly be able to understand and put them into practice but assuming somehow you didn't find a Buddha or Buddha's teachings um, as unlikely as that, as that probably would be um, you would just naturally become enlightened so you may not know you may not ever know that you're a Sotapanna it's not like there's a tattoo on somewhere on your body you'd be like one of those first horses hmm. when going to bed should I note the rising and falling of the abdomen until I fall asleep and how does this differ from sitting meditation as in, can it be a substitute for it? Yeah, a lot about lying. I've already talked a little bit, so hopefully I've answered some of your question. But yes, you absolutely, just note rising, falling. So you fall asleep. Other than that, I think I've already gone over some sitting, some lying stuff. Hi, Bande. Some time ago, I uploaded Spanish subtitles for the second video on how to meditate, sitting meditation, directly to YouTube. But they are not shown until you accept them in your channel in Manage Subtitles NCC. When you have time, can you please add them? Thanks. Guilty as charged. Yeah. Easy to get sidetracked and it's probably still in my inbox somewhere. <laughs> Are you like my coworkers who have 400 unopened emails at any given time? I'm scared to look at this point. <laughs> Dear Bhante, what is your opinion on the Dalai Lama? Are there certain things you disagree with? I don't know enough about the Dalai Lama to have much of an opinion. Another one of those don't ask me questions. Bhante, would you have any practical suggestions for meditation during long haul flights? Hi, so in this video... Sorry, I'm sidetracked again. Bhante, would you have any practical suggestions for meditation during long-haul flights? Yeah, well, sitting meditation, mainly. Also, uh, listening to the Dhamma can be a good uh, sort of a way of practicing. Bring a lot of Dhamma talks, it's a good thing. Just be careful with the... Uh, your meditation timer there was that awful situation where uh, someone was meditating on a flight and they had their meditation timer and someone got freaked out and thought they were a terrorist it happened oh I didn't think this question was speculative as I'm trying to understand the context in which hatred is viewed as impure within the Buddhist teachings how does the Buddhist view of hatred as impure relate to hatred such as homophobia? When one in Buddhism speaks as hatred as impure, do they also encompass things like homophobia in the real world? Well, homophobia, the word is interesting because it, it, it actually implies one is afraid of homosexuality. And that, that is actually how it came, how the term came about, I think, is because a lot of people are really afraid of it. They get afraid, and it starts with fear in themselves that they might be homosexual, fear of the whole idea of it. So there's a fear that, uh, that they themselves might find that 
and it might be a pervert. That's often what we do when someone says, hey, I like people of the same gender. We look in ourselves and think, well, what's that like? That would be awful. That would be evil. That would be wicked. That would be sinful. And so it starts with fear. That's what the word homophobia means. Fear is a type of anger, but it's a specific sort of anger. It's a f sort of disliking of something. It's probably mixed up with worry and anxiety. Um, but it's all impure. I mean, any type of anger, fear, it's all bad. So, yes. Can one use a phrase or multiple words as a mantra instead of one? For example, drinking juice, drinking juice, or drinking water, drinking water, instead of just drinking, drinking? Well, I guess we... I guess we can, since in walking meditation we have walking right. The real question would be which one is better. I find that using multiple words helps focus more on the experience. Thank you for your teachings. No, water doesn't help. Because water isn't real. You're not actually experiencing the drinking of water. You're just experiencing the feeling. The only reason why you'd say drinking is because it reminds you of the act, the act and the experience. Better would be to say gulping or swallowing. If you could, you'd say sucking when you suck the, the water in. The feeling of the, the suction. And then gulping. Swallowing is a good one. When you taste juice or something, you'd say tasting. But the reason we say stepping right or stepping left is because it reminds us where which one. It reminds us where to put the... It's actually a very basic exercise. It's not recommended for advanced meditators. It's just to get the meditator to put their foot in the right foot. So, so, so stepping right, stepping left is a very basic exercise. We get into further... Ultimately, we break the foot up into six steps. And they have much more to do with, with reality than right or left. But drinking water, drinking juice, bad idea. Because you don't, it's not part of the experience. Experience is not juice or water. It's be like hearing a cat. Well, there's no cat. It's just hearing a sound. As soon as you recognize it as water or juice, you're you're in the realm of concepts. I mean, right and left are concepts, but it's not about it being right. Because there's nothing right about the foot. It's just it helps you. It's a it's an aid to putting your foot in the right, putting your mind in the right foot. I think you probably answered this already, but any suggestions on how to make sitting meditation more comfortable? No. Bhante, would you say that Prince Sagatha would have been like the first kind of thoroughbred horse? I imagine he would have left the LA life even before seeing Satara, Satara Paranimita, if King. Sorry? What the heck are those? Where did it go? Oh, it went down. King Soda, Sodadana didn't actively suppress ill news from him. Sattara Peranimiti. I don't know where you're getting those words from. I think Sattara actually comes from Chattara, Chatura, which is four. Pera. I don't know what Pera means. Nimiti is not a word. Nimita? Yeah, you're giving me some sa some singhala that I have no idea what it means. But I think you mean the four uh, devadutta or the four and, and something nimitta, I guess. Bhera, bhera maybe? Bhera, which means fearsome. But yes, definitely the Buddha was, Prince Siddhartha was one of the four, was the first kind, absolutely. Bhante, you said that Mahasi Sayadaw wrote a book about anecdotes of meditators that cured themselves with meditation. Do you know the title of the book? I don't remember it. 
we used to photocopy it. I, I photocopied it several times because I don't think it's on the internet. I don't think it's published. Probably you could find it in Burma. I think it's something like Satipatthana Vipassana Benefits or something. I don't remember. Was it in English, Pante? Yeah. Hmm. He didn't write it, he just collected them. He wrote an introduction to it and then uh, maybe he did write it. Maybe he was writing about it. He was writing about other people. Yeah, maybe he did write it. I, can't, I think but uh, he was just collecting people's stories from other teachers mostly well, many from many different teachers from his own students and from the students of others really interesting book Sir, is it possible that as noting becomes easier in other words, less number of objects to pay attention to distraction and four hindrances take over more frequently? Meaning, could one of the counters to the hindrances be to zoom into steps of the objects of meditation? In other words, lifting, placing to lifting, holding, moving, placing? Or am I being averse to the hindrances and trying to get rid of them? You are. You're starting to get <laughs> what I'm going to, how I'm going to reply to such questions. And there's no way out but through. You got hindrances, deal with them. Learn to let go of them. Don't find a way to avoid them. I think there's five hindrances. There are five hindrances. You're all caught up on questions, Bhante. Okay. I just um, did something to the second video on how to meditate that allows you to upload, but uh, I think you have to upload the subtitles yourself. I, I don't really know. Let me know if there's a problem with uploading the subtitles. And, uh, yeah, I'll try to be a little more responsive to that. I think I must have been in Asia or something. I was in a weird situation when you asked, so I never actually did it. Thank you for, for doing that, Fernando. Yeah, it's great. Okay, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Robin, for your help. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you, Bhante. Good night.